Hear now God's word. After the uproar had ceased, Paul called the disciples to himself, embraced them, and departed to go to Macedonia. Now when he had gone over that region and encouraged them with many words, he came to Greece and stayed three months. And when the Jews plotted against him as he was about to sail to Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. And Sopater of Berea accompanied him to Asia and also Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians and Gaius of Derby and Timothy and Tychius and Trophimus of Asia. These men going ahead waited for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and in five days joined them at Troas where we stayed seven days. Now on the first day of the week when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together. And in a window sat a certain young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep. He was overcome by sleep. And as Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down, fell on him, and embracing him said, Do not trouble yourselves, for his life is in him. And when he had come up, had broken bread and eaten and talked a long while, uh, even till daybreak he departed, and they brought the young man in alive, and they were not a little comforted. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. Amen. You may be seated. On this third missionary journey, Paul spent about three years in Ephesus, which is modern-day Turkey, and now he has left that city and he's going to travel from place to place and work his way back to Greece and Jerusalem and finally to Rome. A lot of the details are included in the book of Acts. Most biblical scholars agree that Paul would have traveled during his missionary journeys over 10,000 miles by foot. To give you a little perspective, that would be equal to walking between New York and Los Angeles four times. Paul likely left Ephesus in May of AD 55, since he mentioned his intention to leave Ephesus after Pentecost in his first letter to the Corinthians. Uh, The events of Acts 20, verses 1 through 3, which we just read, are also explained in 1 Corinthians 16 and 2 Corinthians 1 through 7. And as we read those passages together, we see that the following events occurred during these three months between his arrival in Greece and his planned departure towards Syria that is mentioned in Acts 20, verse 3. He uh, he intended to use the stay in Greece to collect money for the Jerusalem Christians, so he's raising funds for those that are in a time of desperate need. Second, he completed his collection throughout Macedonia. We read about that in 2 Corinthians 8. So remember, he's in the Macedonia region. So wherever he's going, he's taking up collections. And he stayed in Corinth or its nearby port city for nearly uh, three months, according to 1 Corinthians 16. And then we also believe, uh, based on Romans 16, that he wrote the epistle of Romans during this time. N.T. Wright points out these interesting connections 
He said, uh, the two great epics of the ancient world were travel narratives. The Odyssey, Homer's marvelous story of Odysseus returning home from Ithaca off the northwest coast of Greece after the Trojan War, contains inevitably many passages in which the hero and his companions are sailing from island to island, meeting various adventures, getting into and out of remarkable scrapes, and ending up with Odysseus battered and scarcely recognizable, coming home at last. Luke's story has some things in common with that, though, of course, in other respects, it is radically different. But again, this, this, this is an interesting, I think, comparison to think about this, this, tra- this trip, this journey, these journeys where all these things are happening. And then the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, contain at its heart a very different travel narrative. The journey of the children of Israel out of Egypt and home to their promised land. And the idea of a journey which through many twists and turns gets God's people to their final destination, the place that they have been promised, has strong echoes in Luke's story, which sets out, of course, the, the program is set out at the very beginning in Acts 1.8 when Jesus says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And by the end of Acts, it gives the appearance of having accomplished that very task. Since all roads in the ancient world led to, uh, and therefore also from, Rome, Rome, once the gospel has gotten, uh, led, excuse me, led to and from Rome, once the gospel has gotten to Rome in principle, it will get everywhere else as well. And so that's the image we have of this, this trip. So one of the things, uh, this is one of those passages, there's just a, n- a number of details and interesting things, uh, some short vignettes here. And so I just want to point out some things from this text. Sometimes preaching is a matter of just taking the text and saying, let's read it, let's look at it. What can we learn from this? What are some things we need to, to take away? And I think one of the main things we see, not just here, but throughout the book of Acts, is Paul's ministry of encouragement. He and others, they had established churches in many places. Remember, this is his third missionary journey. And so we can imagine a wide variety of circumstances in these various mission churches. There are some that are larger, some that are smaller, in some cases maybe just a few families. A wide range of people, of ethnicities, economics, backgrounds, education, gifts, just like our own churches. They probably had some copies of the Old Testament, but there was not a New Testament yet. So the need for personal instruction in the faith was very critical. So when the, when the apostle shows up, you kind of drop what you're doing, and you're going to spend as much time as you can with him to gain what you can. And so in Acts 20, 1 through 12, uh, all th- this section begins with the word encouragement. You'll recall that Barnabas received his name because he was the son of encouragement. And perhaps Paul, who had spent quite a bit of time with Barnabas, uh, learned from him how important this aspect of ministry was for a healthy and stable church. So Paul encouraged the disciples in the Macedonian region in verse 2. And the Greek word here is parakaline. And then also the believers in Troas, in verse 12, parakaleo, uh, are the two Greek words. 
And this is the, both the verb and the noun form of this Greek word occur 27 times in the book of Acts. And the meaning includes encouragement or comfort and the idea of coming alongside someone to help them. You'll remember that Jesus had identified the Holy Spirit as the helper, the parakletos, uh, and in John chapter 14, verses 25 and 26. These things, Jesus said, I spoke to you while being present with you, but the helper, the paraclete, the helper, the Holy Spirit, the, the encourager, the comforter, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring you to remembrance of all things that I said to you. And so Paul is doing this work. He is encouraging, he is instructing, he is comforting all these young churches by coming alongside of them. And the Holy Spirit is at work. The Holy Spirit is doing this, and the Holy Spirit is doing this through Paul. In other words, the Holy Spirit, again, is doing in Paul what he also does in us. We are to encourage and comfort one another. We're called to come alongside one another. That's how the Holy Spirit works among us. God's Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is in you and in me, and as we come together, so for example, when we read in Colossians 3.16, to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody in your heart to the Lord. We are to exhort one another. We are to encourage one another, pray for one another, comfort one another. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And we should recognize this as kind of, in one sense, ordinary, but in another sense, it's extraordinary. And so that is the focus of what Paul is doing. Initially, on the first missionary journey especially, but these work together, he is doing both evangelistic work, church planting work, and now he is coming back to strengthen, to encourage, to help these churches mature and grow. That involves some appointing of leadership, some instruction in the Word, no doubt many administrative things, all kinds of things go into that work. So that is what he's doing primarily. Now, in verses 2 through 6, Luke records with some details Paul's travel schedule and itinerary. He probably spent several months visiting the Macedonian region of churches that he had established on his second missionary trip, places like Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea, but ultimately Paul had said he wanted to get to Jerusalem, which we find out that he does in Acts 21 and verse 15. He had been delayed in Ephesus. He wanted to leave earlier, but due to the commotion or the riot that broke out that was stirred up by Demetrius, he got delayed. And in 2 Corinthians 1, verses 8 through 11, he describes the events of this time period this way. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia. That's in Ephesus. That we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we even despaired of life. The Apostle Paul despaired. It was so hard. He didn't know how this was going to end. He was discouraged, no doubt, in, at any given moment. Above strength, he says, so that we even despaired even of life. Yes, 
We had the sentence of death in ourselves. They thought they were going to die. That we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. We didn't know how we were going to get out of this. We thought we were goners. But we trusted in God who was able to do what we couldn't do, in whom we trust that he shall still deliver us, you also helping together in prayer for us, that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through many. He says, your prayers God heard and brought us through that, and so we're a team. We need each other. We need to be praying for those who are in need, those who are in bad situations. We just did that in the pastoral prayer. You should do that because you know what? There's going to be a time when you need people to pray for you. We need each other. We need this coming together. And Paul is expressing his gratitude to them and saying, we came through this, but really you came through this with us. We need each other. And in 1 Corinthians 15.32, he spoke of having fought with beast at Ephesus. In the previous chapter, we saw that Paul also said uh, in chapter 19, verse 21, I must also see Rome. It seems that Luke is telling the story of how Paul ultimately again fulfilled that commission of Jesus to take the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth. And since Rome was considered the most important city in the world, He couldn't rest until he knew the gospel had reached this great crossroad. Uh, Paul clearly understood the strategic importance of the various major cities that he traveled, but of course he didn't neglect the smaller places either. But he always, you see him moving from central place to central place, or Athens or Greece or uh, all these uh, bigger areas because there was going to get churches established there. There's more people to draw from. And then people traveled, and they came and went. So people would hear the gospel, go back to their places, and that's how we see the church spreading throughout the region. And so during this time, during this time, uh, he went from town to town in the Macedonian region and reached as far as uh, Illyricum on the Adriatic coast in the north. And it's during this time that Paul, again, pins his letter to the Romans around A.D. 57 to 59, approximately 25 years after the resurrection of Jesus, to give you a time reference. So, so far the book of Acts has covered about 25 years. Here he writes in Romans 15, 18 through 21, For I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me, in word and deed, to make the Gentiles obedient, in many signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and round about Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And so I have made it my aim to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation, but as it is written, to whom he was not announced, they shall see. And those who have not heard shall understand. And so he is deliberately going into places where the gospel has never been before. You imagine how uncertain that is, how scary that is. And so we read in verse 4 of the entourage of nine men, including Paul, who were on their way to Philippi, who were then joined by a tenth, which was Luke himself, because Luke includes himself when he uses the 
the we uh, and, and, and says and refers to himself as being part of this. Paul rarely traveled alone, and those men must have been the fruits of his first and second missionary journeys into that region. The names and locations demonstrate the incredible spread of the gospel outside of Jerusalem and Antioch through all of Asia Minor and Galatia and beyond Macedonia and Greece. And so now these men, the fruit of his first missionary journey probably, are now engaged in the mission work themselves. Now I think this is important. Uh, it is clear that these young churches, again sometimes small churches, they themselves were not just looking inwardly, they were mission-minded. I think it's very easy for any church, especially when it's a young church, and, and we've been that, we think about that, uh, it just occurs to me that this, uh, what I just said, Paul's been doing this now for 25 years, that's how old this church is, 25 years. And it's easy, especially in those early days, to be turned inward about our needs about where are we going to meet and how are we going to do this and we need more people and all kinds of needs that we have and it's difficult to look out and look beyond ourselves. But it's clear that these young churches did so since they gave up some of their local leadership for the broader work of the church. Churches can and sometimes are too parochial. We don't want to do it unless we see some direct benefit to us. But I think what we have to understand is we as a church, every local church, is a mission to the world. We're here to take the gospel to the world however it's done. Now at least seven or eight of them, these men, sailed to Troas while Paul and Luke stayed in Philippi for the Feast of the Unleavened Bread or the Passover. And next, Paul and Luke sailed from Philippi across the Aegean toward across the Aegean toward Troas, uh, where they spent a week with the men who had gone before them. Now, I want you to note that Luke mentions all these details like times and locations, and sometimes when we're reading the Bible, those things can seem tedious. Uh, nevertheless, these destinations, these time stamps, bolster the historicity of Scripture. Luke is a good historian, and he tells this story along with the geographic progression of Paul's gospel mission. So now we turn to verse 7, and it says, Now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread. This is at Troas. And in this, so in this kind of matter-of-fact way, Luke mentions that they came together on the first day. This is our first recorded record of Christians gathering on the first day of the week, literally the first day after the Sabbath, what we call Sunday, for corporate worship. It appears that the change of Sabbath from the seventh day and the last, last day to the first day of the week was rooted in the fact that Jesus rose from the dead on the first day, as Luke mentions in Luke 24. Westminster Confession, chapter 21, verse, uh, uh, paragraph 7 says, As it is of the law of nature that in general a due portion of time be set apart for the worship of God, so in his word, by a positive, moral, and perpetual commandment, binding all men in all ages, he has particularly appointed one day in seven for a Sabbath, 
to be kept holy unto him, which from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ was the last day of the week. Uh, remember commemorating the old creation. And from the resurrection of Christ was changed into the first day of the week, commemorating the new creation, which in Scripture is called the Lord's Day and is to be continued to the end of the world as the Christian Sabbath. Derek Thomas adds this historical note. Uh, the teachings of the Twelve Apostles, which is also called the Didache, uh, is a document that is now thought to have been written as early as the 60s of the first century A.D., perhaps a mere decade after the account of Paul's visit to Troas is recorded here in Acts 20, contains a fascinating statement with regard to what it calls the Lord's Day. It says this, And according to the divinely instituted day or rule of the Lord, having been gathered together, break a loaf, and eucharize, having beforehand confessed your failings, so that your sacrifice may be pure. This confirms the transition of the observance of Sabbath to the Lord's Day very early in the historical records of the church. Now, we should remember every Sunday is a feast day since every Sunday celebrates the resurrection of Jesus. We should remember, however, that Sunday for these folks was an ordinary work day, which would explain why they're meeting at night. They've probably been working all day long, and now after they've gotten off work, they've gathered here. And this is consistent with what we read in Hebrews 8.13, where God says... um, Uh, that he has made the first covenant obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. In other words, that's a reference to the Old Testament ceremonial laws. Certain changes are taking place because of the work of Christ. The temple itself is gone, or going to be gone shortly. Uh, The priesthood, the sacrifices. And so now there's a new order here. And so the first day signaled the beginning of the new and the end of the old And again, it came to be known by the time we get to Revelation chapter 1, verse 10, and John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Verses 7 through 12 deal with the downfall of Eutychus. It's interesting to note that Luke describes describes an upper room on the first day of the week where they've gathered to break, break bread, and this should remind us, of course, of the upper room where Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. And again in Acts 1.13, where the disciples met in an upper room to pray. So Paul was planning, remember, to leave Troas. The text says he was going to be leaving the next day. And so they're trying to cram in everything they can, if you will. Uh, and, and so it says he spoke to them uh, and continued his message until midnight. These folks were hungry for the word and again, they wanted to take advantage of Paul's presence as much as possible. Now, it's interesting because some people, a lot of jokes made around this uh, because of Paul preaching so long. I'm not sure he was actually preaching in the same sense that I am right now. Um, there's two words used here. The first one, the two Greek words uh, in verse 7 and 9, uh, it suggests an instructional discourse or lesson. So he's just teaching them the Bible. So in that sense, it's something more akin to a lecture or a talk. The other word is homilio, which would be translated conversation. Uh, and this, we might think of this maybe it's probably more like a Q&A. 
uh, where Paul's taking questions and answering in uh, an open forum, so, so, so to speak. So Paul spoke from early evening until the next morning, we, we find out later in this text, with only one break, apparently, near midnight. Um, and Luke gives us a little detail in verse 7. He says, there were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together, and so no, no doubt this created a dim, uh, dimly lit room at night, and then also uh, perhaps uh, the oxygen level might have been a little lower, but the stage is set now. And this brings us to the interesting inst- incident with Eutychus, who, which is interesting, I didn't know this before. Uh, one person said his name means fortunate. Uh, N.T. writes that his name means lucky. Um, as it turns out, that will uh, be the case. We're told that he was a young man, and that means that he was probably between 18 and 14 years old. And now what happened to Eutychus, of course, could have happened to many of us if we were sitting in the window, open window of a third-story window at midnight during a church service. I don't recommend that. Um, in fact, it apparently could happen to us mid-morning on a Sunday after a good night's rest uh, with air conditioning. Um, thankfully, we all sit on the ground floor in a chair, and so the fall is not so great when we, when we go down. Um, so, when I see someone doze off during my sermon, I'm at least comforted to know that the apostle had the same experience. <sighs> Eutychus fell from the third floor and died. Dr. Luke was there to confirm it. Um, this miracle is similar to the one Peter performed on Dorcas in Acts chapter 9, And both Peter and Paul are certainly reflecting the ministries of Elijah and Elisha, who also raised young boys from the dead. Both Peter, uh, so so none, but but it's interesting. In fact, this struck me as almost funny. Can you imagine? You've been going for hours, and now this happens. And everybody stops, and they run downstairs, and Paul embraces this boy's body, and he comes to life, and he's okay. Now what? Well, Paul was not daunted. He wasn't phased by this. Uh, they, they raised him from the dead, and then they con- he continued teaching until daybreak. Well, if you think about that a little bit, how, how could they continue after this? Well, think about this. I suspect after witnessing a resurrection from the dead, everybody was awake. And they were really ready to hear more. So what happens after this, I I can imagine that Paul's parting words to them might have been similar to what he wrote to the Philippians. And so, again, he's getting ready to leave the next day. He's been there for a week, stayed up all night. Here's what he said to the Philippians, and I think he might have said something like this. Therefore, my beloved brethren, as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless, 
children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also should be glad and rejoice in me. I, have, I really think that this has to be the kind of thing Paul said as he departed everywhere. Think about how encouraging that is. All this proved, the text says, to be a great comfort, again, parakletos, the same word, and encouragement to the church. And by the way, all of this should prove to be a great comfort and encouragement to all of us as well, because God, through Luke, has recorded this for us in the book of Acts so that we sit here today and can hear these same things. So we too are being encouraged and comforted. And so we too, like the Christians at Troas, must cultivate a hunger for the Word of God and a strong desire to send it out. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks today for your providential care of your church and for calling and sending out missionaries to the world. We are indeed comforted and encouraged by the examples, the teaching, and the boldness of those who've gone before us. As they have passed the baton to us, may we too be found faithful in this mission to the world to proclaim your living word, which is the good news that our sins are forgiven in Christ, and we now rest in the assurance of eternal life in him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 John 1, verses 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life, the life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life was with the Father and was manifested to us That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. And so I ask you this morning, as we prepare to come to the table, remember he talks about all these things that Christ has done is so that we could uh, have fellowship or communion with one another and with the Father and with the Son. Is your joy full? If it's not, then you either don't know or else you have forgotten what it means to have fellowship with the saints and with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. This table is before us to remind us of these facts in case we forgot. So if you're not full of joy, it's because you forgot who you are and what that means. And we've come here to remember that so that our joy may be full. Then you and I will be comforted and encouraged. 
God speaks to His people through His Word as it is read and expounded from Scripture and also when it is dramatized in the sacraments. Strictly speaking, the sacrament itself is a word. It's a visible word. What builds the church is the ministry of God's Word as it comes to us through Scripture and sacrament audibly and visibly in declaration and in drama. Amen. Father, we thank you for the faithful saints that have gone before us who have provided the example of perseverance to the end. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, help us to lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and enable us to run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We praise you for this finished work of salvation. Bless now this Lord's day. May we sanctify it unto you, setting aside our own labors and concerns. May we delight in you and in one another. Bless our food and our conversation, and may they both be used for our good and for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and forever. Amen. Amen.